The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Today's scripture reading is in Matthew 5, verse 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Be seated. I told you it was going to get uncomfortable. Uh, You have to wonder um, if there's ever been a a generation in the, you know, like history of the world in which this particular teaching of Jesus was more needed and more obviously applicable than our own. That's what the late John Stott, the late theologian John Stott wrote nearly 50 years ago now in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. 50 years ago. Now think about this. 50 years ago, that was before VCRs. Some of you are like, what's a VCR? That's how old that was, right? This was before satellite dishes, not the 18-inchers. I'm talking the eight-footers pulling in galaxies and F1 planet stuff from all over the place to get these videos on our TV screens. This is before cable TV and Cinemax and personal computers, before Netflix and the internet and smartphones in your pocket. Again, he said almost 50 years ago, there's never been a point in the history of the world, more so than now, where we need this teaching. Whoa! If that was true then, what must be true today? And we can think about Stott's words, we can chuckle, we can, you know, we can call him naive, poor Johnny, you know, if he could only see us now, you know. Uh, but the reality is this, this text was needed, it was applicable in the 1970s, just as needed and as applicable as it is today, though we have unique challenges to be sure. But it was even needed and applicable 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke it. And the reason why is that this teaching, it has to do with sex, doesn't it? And in particular, sexual sin. And sexual sin, no matter all the outside factors and external temptation, sexual sin is always an issue of the heart. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And you know, before we go further, I need to say this. This sermon, I put this on the, on the church center thing this week. But this, this sermon is sort of rated, you know, kind of like PG-13, all right? Uh, there's no nudity, in case you're wondering. There's no expletives. Um, but that, it, it is a little bit like PG-13 material. Now, does that mean that you should just, you know, shuttle your young children out of the sanctuary right now? No. Um, but you will need to talk with them after the sermon. <laughs> and I, I pray, I hope that you talk with them after every sermon, you know. But this week, you're going to need to talk with them about sex. And uh, that's actually a really good thing. Uh, parents, you, you need to be talking with your children about sex over and over and in different Context at different levels, at different ages, but at all ages, at 8, at 10, at 15, at 18, at 25, at 36. Sex is, is, needs to be a part of the, the normal flow and conversation of your life. You don't just need to have the conversation. You need to have lots of conversations. 
Because guess what? Everyone in the world is talking about sex. Sex is everywhere. And if you're not talking with your kids about sex, they're, they're probably never going to have a clue what the Bible actually teaches about sex, for one thing. But secondly, if you're not talking with your kids about sex, they're going to look for answers elsewhere. And all that to say, it may seem like this sermon is rated PG-13, but Christians, as Christians, honestly, we can talk about this stuff. We should be able to talk about this stuff because the scriptures talk about this stuff. And we don't have to be ashamed of that. Now, why is Jesus talking about sex? And remember, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus, what he's doing, he's teaching us about how to live. Um, he's teaching us about the law of God. Remember, he came to fulfill it, he, he said. And, and here, just like last week, he's teaching us about the spirit of the law, um, not just the letter of the law. Last week, we, you remember, he started out by saying, you, you've heard that it was said that you shall not murder, but I say to you that anger, you know, calling someone a fool, it's like murder in your heart. What was he addressing? He was addressing the heart. It's the same this week. Look at verse 27. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, where? In his heart. You see what Jesus is doing? He's he's saying you can commit murder with your words. You, You can commit murder in your heart. And listen, you can commit adultery there too. See, the command, you shall not commit adultery, that's, that's one of the big ones. It's back in, back in the Ten Commandments, right? Just like you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. It's number seven, if you're a wanderer, Exodus 20, verse 14. And it was a big one. Um, in fact, the, the, the pen, do you know what the penalty was in the Old Testament for committing adultery? <laughs> but not, it was more like, throw rocks at you until you, until you die. It was death. The death penalty was what was prescribed for those who were caught in adultery. In the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 spells it out. It says, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Like no messing around. Literally, you know. But why? See, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, when we were talking about this, what the Pharisees of Jesus' day did is they kind of reduced the law down. They thinned it out. They turned the seventh commandment into a, into a checklist item, and in so doing, they, they, you know, what they said was, as long as I stay out of bed you know, with my neighbor's wife, don't have sexual intercourse you know, with, with her, with the wife of my neighbor, check, check. And they missed the, they missed the deeper, they missed the heart, the, the spirit of the law. Do not commit adultery was about way more. Sexual sin always is. Sexual sin is always an issue of the heart. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, to understand it, first what we need is a biblical theology of sex. Did you know that the Bible has a lot to to teach us about sex? It does, actually. And every single Christian needs to have a, a fundamental theology, a fundamental theological understanding of sex, which is to say we need to understand the why behind the what of the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which Jesus quotes here, in Matthew 5, 27. And I'll go a little bit quickly through this, but if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, where God creates male and female in his image, right? the very first man, the very first woman, he gave them a mandate to be fruitful and to, and to what? To multiply and to fill the earth. This is Genesis 1, 28. How are they to do that? By having sex. <laughs> Just to put it plainly, by making babies. Biologically, it takes a man, it takes a woman, both whom God created, equal yet different, to make a baby, to be fruitful, and to multiply, to fill the earth. It takes a sperm and an egg to do that. Some things we can learn from this. One, God's design for sex 
is to be between a man and a woman. And two, one of the fundamental reasons for God creating sex was procreation. More babies, more humans. Why did he want that? More people to glorify him, that's why. Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, they were to make and mature and unleash more God glorifiers into the world. Now, biblically, sex is about more than procreation. It's not less, but it's about more than that also. It's, it's also to be enjoyed. We're not going to go fully there uh, this morning, but if, if you read, for example, um, in the Old Testament, the, the book of Song of Solomon, right? there's some stuff in there. All right? And if, you, if you've never read that before, you, you, should, you should check that out. It's a, whole, it's a whole book of the Bible, really, that it, it illustrates the joy of sex in a way. The enjoyment, the pleasure of sex. See, counter to, to how a lot of people outside of the church, and maybe even inside the church, think that the Bible talks about sex, it's really not prudish at all. There are things in, in that book, Song of Solomon, that'll they'll make you blush. They'll make you blush. There's also things in Proverbs. I'll give you one example, just so you believe me. Um, Proverbs 5, verse 19. Solomon wrote this, Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. And be intoxicated always in her love. <laughs> That's not the language of the prude. That's the language of passion. It's, uh, any biblical theology of sex must include the fact that God has, has not simply created sex to be procreative, but also for it to be passionate, for it to be pleasurable, enjoyable by both parties. Additionally, Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 7 that married couples aren't to deprive one another of sex. A lot of guys are like, you know, can I get that verse? What was that one again? You know? But before you do that, before you jot it down, you should also realize that Paul is teaching there about selflessness. <laughs> and that, that actually one of the purposes of sex is to please and serve your spouse. You don't get to read that merely as a recipient. In, in other words, it's not for selfish pleasure. It's not for what I can get out of it, what I can feel, what I can experience. It's intended to be selfless. What can I provide? How can I please? How can I give? That's actually, that's actually extremely radical in our world today. That teaches us that sex is all about me. It's what I can get, what I want to feel, what I want, when I want it, how I want it, all those things. So summing up so far, one important purpose for sex biblically is to procreate. Sex is for procreation. Secondly, sex is to be enjoyed. Thirdly, sex is to be selfless. But really, really importantly now, fourthly, sex is for marriage. The context for sex is that of marriage. You know, back in Genesis, and, and, and Paul quotes this uh, in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5 as well, but back in the very beginning when, when, when God created Adam and Eve, um, when they were naked in the garden, you know, and, and Adam sings to Eve, when God brings her to him, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, whoa, man, right? And remember that it's the naked love song. And when they were naked and unashamed, God says right after that, right after the naked love song, right after that next, very next verse, Genesis 2, 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let me get a little bit more specific with the theology part here. The, the Bible teaches us that marriage is a covenant that we enter into. And before marriage, the husband and the wife are not in a covenant. They're not one flesh. But in marriage, 
The two become related in a union so close, so intimate and permanent that the only language for it is a language of united flesh. One flesh. It's odd language. You know, the man and the woman, they don't literally become one person. They remain distinct people. But now, as a result of the covenant of marriage, a husband now relates to his wife as if she were a part of his own body, caring for and protecting her, just as he cares and protects for himself, and vice versa, her to him. And a covenant relationship is different than a consumer relationship. In a consumer relationship, I'm in it for me, to benefit me, What do I get out of this? How can you serve me? But in a covenant relationship, it actually gets inverted. I'm in it for you. To benefit you. To serve you. Even sexually, as we've seen. And listen, right now you're thinking, well, I I don't know if I like all that. But listen, when when both husband and wife have that mindset, (laughs) this is one of the reasons why it's really important to not be unequally yoked. But when both husband and wife have that mindset, that covenantal approach to the marriage relationship, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it's more than beautiful and powerful, it's biblical. It's biblical. This is God's design for marriage. This is God's design for the context for sex. See, one of the major differences between the consumer relationship, which is what sex outside of of marriage, sex outside the context of marriage is really based upon, A major difference between a consumer relationship and a covenant relationship is that in the covenant, the covenant isn't broken if one side isn't holding up their end. That's not how our covenantal relationships work. That's not how our covenantal relationship with God works. Can you imagine if it did? If as a Christian, you know, the bride of Christ, that's who we are. If when you sinned, you know, committing spiritual adultery, which is what sin is. Or if you didn't give to God everything that he deserves, you know, loving him with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength, if you failed at that, or if when you sinned and you didn't give everything that God deserves, God said, it's over. Like if he moved out and moved on, Christianity would be awful. You'd never make it. But that's not how covenantal relationships work. In a covenant, even if one side fails, the other side doesn't flee. Now listen, there's biblical grounds for divorce. And we're going to get into all that next week because Jesus does in his sermon. But the point today is that a covenant relationship is to be a place of safety. It's to be a place of security, of of trust, of commitment. It's why, in, in the language of our wedding ceremonies, it's why we make vows actually before God, calling God to to witness the vow, to witness the entering into the marriage covenant, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, till what? Death. Death do we part. Unlike a consumer relationship in a covenant, I'm not out of here if you don't meet my needs. I'm not out of here if you don't give me what I want or love me how I want. I'm not out of here if we get mad at each other or grow apart and change, which we all do, by the way. I'm not out of here if we're broke <laughs> or someone, one of us gets sick. It's a deep commitment, a lasting commitment, a covenant 
which creates the context of safety, a context for vulnerability, not just for sex, but for all of life. It's a, a whole life vulnerability. Now, in addition to understanding marriage as a covenant, you also need to understand that every covenant in the Bible has a sign. That's the way covenants work in the Bible. Think about um, Noah, when God flooded the earth. And then after that, he made a covenant with Noah, right, to never do that again. He's never going to flood the earth again. What was the sign that he gave Noah of this covenant? The rainbow was a sign. When God covenants with repenting sinners in the new covenant, the sign of the new covenant is baptism. But this visible portrayal of an invisible reality of being you know, united with Christ, buried with Christ, cleansed from sin, raised to new life. What then is the sign of covenant marriage? What portrays the invisible reality of becoming one flesh? Sex. Intercourse, to be more specific. Fairly sure you don't need an anatomy lesson this morning, but use your imagination for a second, just for a second. What goes on in sexual intercourse? You got the picture? Got the image? That's the sign of becoming one flesh. Sexy is it's a sign, it's the covenantal sign of a one flesh union. As a sign is to signify, I am fully yours, you're fully mine. It's to signify safety. It's to signify security, whole life commitment, whole life vulnerability. This is why, biblically, any sex outside of marriage, all sex outside of marriage is called sin. It mocks the sign. It makes a mockery of the covenant that God instituted, a covenant he created for your good. Don't you see, when you have sex with someone that you're not married to, you're asking them to do with their body what you're... What, neither of you are really doing with your life, with your soul. It's asking for physical vulnerability without whole life vulnerability. Some of us do this in marriage too, don't we? <laughs> Which is why in the end, that kind of sex is completely selfish. It runs counter to the whole point of sex to begin with. This is also why sex outside of marriage is so dangerous, so destructive, so harmful. I know our culture says, hey, listen, it's just sex. It's just sex. What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. And any human being who's honest with themselves knows that it's a huge deal. It's a big deal because God created it to be a big deal. We, therefore, as those created in his image, experience it as a big deal. Casual sex is a misnomer. Even sex outside of marriage by Christians we know that it's a big deal and experience it as a big deal. It's why we convince ourselves we're married in our heart. Or it's why we, 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 we tell everyone around, well, we're going to get married anyway. And so we excuse it by that. Why do we do that? Why do we convince ourselves that? Well, because when two bodies come together in this way, when, when, when two persons are united, that's the whole idea of becoming one flesh. And what that means is that no one can simply have sex with another person and leave your soul parked out at the curb. Your soul is involved in that act. Don't you see, you, you've got the sign without what it signifies. Which means you've got an empty sign. It'd be equivalent to getting baptized, only later to find out and realize that Jesus hadn't really forgiven your sins, that you're not really united with him in his death and resurrection. 
is empty. This is why, coming back to the text in Matthew 5, this is why adultery was such a big deal. Like the penalty for in the Old Testament was the death sentence. The sentencing was to awaken God's people to the deadly and empty nature of sexual sin. And when we look around at our world today, we might also be able to say a few things bring more pain, more emptiness, more destruction into people's lives than sexual sin. Church, sex is it's good. Right? I mean, it's so good. It was created by God and given to us by God, and it's good. It's rich. It's deep with purpose and meaning. Sexual sin, on the other hand, like adultery, is bad. And it's not just bad because the Bible says it's bad. It's bad for you. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now we know why. But let's keep reading. Again, 27, Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here we have Jesus uh, rethickening the Pharisees' understanding of the law, don't we? It's almost like if we... You know, imagine a, a spectrum of sexual sin. You can picture a spectrum of sexual sin. You know, you put adultery over here on the, on the one end. That's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Most people in the world would even agree. A lot of non-Christians would even agree. You know, yeah, you really shouldn't do that. That's, you're breaking up marriages. That's, that's not good. Breaking up families. But then clear, so if that's over here, adultery, clear on the other side is lust, perhaps. Looking lustfully at another person, Jesus says. He says it's basically all one and the same. If we step back and evaluate our spectrum, that would also mean that everything in between the two is sin as well. This is the Bible's view of sexual sin. This is the, the biblical sex ethic. From adultery to lust and everything in between, it's all sin. Any sex outside of heterosexual marriage, okay? But even lust, Jesus says. Even lust? Really, Jesus? Yes, he says. And here he teaches us about the sin of lust. That's our second main point. Because sexual sin isn't just about what you do. You know, like with murder and anger last week, it's not just the action, but the attitude. That's another way of saying that sexual sin is always an issue of the heart. Now, let's, let's make real sure that we you know, comprehend what Jesus is talking about here. Um, when he addresses a, you know, a man in this passage, uh, ladies, you're not exempt from this. This is applicable to you too. He addresses a man looking at a woman with lustful intent. It's just as applicable as a woman looking at a man with lustful intent. Or a man looking at another man with lustful intent. Or a woman looking at another woman with lustful intent. Can we just be clear? It's not the object of the lustful intent that's the problem or the focus. It's the lustful intent of the heart. Now we also need to distinguish between looking at someone with lustful intent and simply being attracted to someone, or recognizing beauty, or handsomeness. Is that a word? It is now. Acknowledging beauty, experiencing attraction is, is not in and of itself sinful. What makes it sinful is what verse 28 says makes it sinful, is lustful intent. The Greek word here for lust is epithemeo. It, it means to, to long for, to, to covet even, to passionately seek after. It means to 
set your heart upon. Hmm. It's not looking at someone and finding them attractive. It's looking at someone and longing to have sex with them. Desiring to be intimate with them. Uh, Beginning even to to fantasize what that would be like, undressing this other person in your imagination. Picturing it in your mind, starting to go there, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally, maybe physically. This is the beginning of the action, but it's all on the inside. And it's really sneaky because it's so inward. Like you, you can commit this sin without anyone ever knowing it except God. <laughs> you can appear to be a completely upstanding and respectable Christian, and this is going on. It's so subtle. It's invisible. It's sin. And it's rampant. I mean, who among us has has never, never, in all your life, never sinned in this way? Can we just acknowledge that temptation is everywhere? We live in a culture of the near omnipresence of sex. (laughs) TV shows, you ever start trying to watch a new TV series? You're like, this is a good show. And then you get like the third episode, it's like, whoa, gratuitous sex scene. Yikes. Did not even know that was coming. Images everywhere. You can't just erase them from your mind once they're there. You can fall into this temptation at home. You can fall into this temptation at work. You can fall into this temptation at the gym. You can fall into this temptation at church. And we haven't even mentioned pornography yet, which is something like a $97 billion global industry. $97 billion. It's rampant. It's more accessible than ever before, more secretly accessible than ever before. The stats are horrendous. 420 million pages of pornography, uh, pornographic material on the internet, according to a study from like three years ago. So it's probably a little more now. In 2019, one site boasted of 6,650 centuries of pornography consumed. It's estimated that 30% of the internet industry is pornography. 25% of all search engine requests are related to it. And this isn't just an issue for men. One survey found that one in three women watches pornography at least once a week. Another study found that 56% of women under 25 and 27% of women over 25 seek out pornography. And then there's a 2018 research project that was published in the Journal of Sex Research It says, while pornography use for young adults has been repeatedly reported to be approximately 75% for men and 30% for women, which we might think is pretty high, this study found the consumption rates from their study actually to be closer to 91 to 99% of men and 60 to 92% of women, especially when you include the category of written pornography for women. It's rampant. It's pervasive. It's so destructive. Even, it's so destructive that even parts of our secular society are starting to recognize its destructive effects. One study I heard summarized boldly stated that pornography now affects nearly everyone's relationships. Everyone's. And they listed crushing, unrealistic expectations about looks and performance. Men less likely wanting to be involved in the messiness of marriage. Because marriage is way, 
way more complicated than virtual sex, which means that there's fewer men desiring marriage, just among other things, right? It's affecting nearly everyone. By the way, I forgot to mention, i got some good news and some bad news for you today. We're doing the bad news first, right? Um, but listen, I just, I, I just rattled off all those stats not to shame anyone in this room. Um, not, not to heap guilt upon anyone in this room. No one has, to the best of my knowledge, no one has ever experienced freedom from being shamed. If anything, with sharing those stats, what, what I want you to realize, especially if this is your struggle, is that you're not a freak. You're not alone. If you find yourself in one of those statistics, which according to the statistics themselves, there's a decent chance that you do. You're in sin. And that's precisely why you need Jesus. This is probably a really good spot for me to just remind us of of the words that we find in 1 John. Where the Apostle John writes this, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And which means no one in here is without sin. It might not be this sin, but no one is without sin. And if you say you are, if you think you are, if you look down upon others as though you are, you're deceived and the gospel truth is not in you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from how much of our unrighteousness? All of it. All unrighteousness. Like, think about that. There, there is no sexual sin that God cannot, will not forgive and cleanse you from if you turn to him, trusting Jesus. Like doesn't, doesn't, matter how, doesn't matter how deep, how dark into the porn web you've gone. Doesn't matter the, the, the lusting. Doesn't, doesn't matter if it's been hetero or otherwise. Sex before marriage, sleeping around, a promiscuous life, sex, sex outside of, of marriage, adult, you know, L, G, B, T, Q, even adultery. Even worse. You can use your imagination. I'm not going to name abuses this morning. There is no sexual sin that God cannot, will not forgive if you turn to him trusting Jesus. Doesn't mean that there might be a, you know, it might not be a tsunami wave of consequences and brokenness and fallout, even divorce that that comes from it. Doesn't mean that we don't need to be wise and think about protections and and the civil law and, and, and fences and background checks and all that sort of stuff. But it does mean we can be forgiven, we can be cleansed, we can be redeemed. And this is exactly what Jesus does for us when we trust in him. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. You want to make God a liar? (laughs) If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. He's saying, please don't sin in these ways. Not endorsing it, not giving you permission, nothing like that. Please do not sin in these ways. But if anyone does, if anyone has, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but he's the hope of the world. Remember that spot in John chapter 8? It's, the woman, it's right at the beginning of John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees bring her to, to Jesus. It says, that, says they had caught her in the act of adultery. It might be reasonable for us to expect that she is not clothed. And they, they bring her before Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. Now the law says we should kill her. Leviticus 20, verse 10. What do you think we should do? Remember what Jesus did? He, he, he squatted down, did something with his finger in the dirt. Probably drawing the cross chart. Right? <laughs> and he stood up and he, and he, and he says, um, whoever of you is without sin, throw the first stone. And then he actually goes down, he does draw some more, maybe the cross in the middle there. I don't know what he's doing down there. Nobody does. All right. And he looks up, he stands up, and everyone's gone but her. And he says to her, you know, where'd they all go? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. (laughs) There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus here today. No one is here to to shame you, to guilt you, to condemn you. No condemnation. And yet, go, and from now on, sin no more. In other words, go and mortify your sin. Kill it. And that brings us to the last part of the passage back in Matthew Chapter 5, the last two verses in the command to mortify that's here. Let's, let's look at them. You thought maybe we were going to skip this part. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members, one of your members, than your whole body be thrown into hell. That's pretty serious language right there. Uh, one of the early church fathers, origin of Alexandria, I, t- I double-checked this, but it's true. He read this, and he decided to emasculate himself. <laughs> he maimed himself, cutting it off. Not too long after that, there was a big council meeting, Council of Nicaea, and uh, all the church leaders got together, probably all men at that point, right? They all got together, like, yeah, let's, no, that's not... That's not what we're doing. That's not, this is hyperbole. Uh, we're not supposed to actually gouge out our eye, tear it out and throw it away. We're not supposed to actually cut off our hand or any other appendage um, of, of our body. This isn't about mutilation, see. It's about mortification. It's about killing sin. Like This is Jesus saying, drastic times call for drastic measures. See, notice here where it says that this sexual sin where it's leading to hell. And therefore, do whatever it takes. Don't look. You know, like behave as if if you'd actually torn out your eye and flung it away. Now you're blind. 
Don't touch your phone. Like, behave as if you actually had cut off your hand and thrown it away. Build fences, enlist accountability, get into a sexual integrity group, confess your sin to other brothers and sisters. Listen, we can do that here because we all have the gospel here and we understand what it means to be saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ and not our performance. We understand that we are all sinful and therefore need Jesus so we can confess our need for Jesus. You don't have to be ashamed of needing Jesus. You don't have to be ashamed of needing your sins forgiven. That's why we can confess our sins. So confess it, even if it feels humiliating, even if it feels maiming, come clean, come into the light, ask for prayer, ask for encouragement, ask for accountability, ask for help, ask for counseling, get drastic, walk in repentance, and ask others to walk with you in that. Mortify your sin, kill it. Don't pamper it. Don't flirt with it. Don't keep it in the dark and just try a little bit harder to sin a little bit less. Jesus said, crush it. Kill it. Gouge it out and cut it off and throw it away. Go and sin no more. Now, one last thing here. You may have read this passage before about lust and committing adultery in the heart and the tearing out the eye and cutting off a hand. And and, and you may have thought to yourself, I've seen a lot of movies about pirates. You know, and a a one-eyed, one-handed man can still do a lot of damage. A lot of damage. And that's exactly right. Which is why Jesus points out here, this is a heart issue. Sexual sin is always an issue of the heart. And what that means for you and me is, listen, we're not merely after sin management techniques as helpful as some of those are, and you might need some. You probably do. But to really mortify your sin, you're going to have to get much, much deeper. You're going to have to get all the way deep down into your heart. What do I mean by that? I mean, you're actually going to actually gonna have to examine your lust. You're actually going to have to question your desires. What's underneath it? What's driving it? What are you longing for? Over in Colossians 3, when when Paul is commanding Christians to to mortify their sexual sin, he calls it idolatry. What's idolatry? It's, It's longing after something other than God. It's looking to something or someone other than God for something that you're only ultimately to look to God for. It's a heart issue. Remember the word for lust back in verse 28. Epithumeo, it means to long for, to covet, to fix your heart upon. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus starts the passage in Matthew 5 here with the seventh commandment, but in effect, he's dealing with the tenth. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You see what he's doing? The commandments, they all go together. He's trying to help us understand how to live. He's trying to help us understand not just the letter of the law, but the spirit. And the commandments, they all go together. You can't isolate any one of them. He's deepening the seventh in terms of the tenth. They all link back to the first. No other gods before me. See, underneath your lust, underneath your, your sexual sin, deep down in your heart, you're longing for something. There's something that's going on in there. It might be loneliness that's going on. It might be emptiness or boredom or shame. It might be control or or futility or stress. 
feeling like you have to be in charge and in control of serving others all the time. What you really want is be served yourself just for a moment. And so you look for escape. You look for release. Pleasure in an otherwise numb and dull and weary life. What are you feeling? What's driving you? It can also be anger. Anger at a spouse. Anger at yourself. Anger at God for not giving you a spouse. Anger at God for giving you the spouse that he gave you. See, deep, deep down, underneath all our sexual sin, we, what we all long for, we all long to be loved, deeply loved. We all long to be accepted and desired and pursued, important. We want to be fawned over. We want to be nurtured. We want safety. We want security, a place to be vulnerable, naked and unashamed. And as long as you're looking for that horizontally, You'll never find it. You'll never find enough to fill that void. It's only when we look up, vertically, that we realize it's all got to come from Him. Only when you realize that you've been looking for sex to know you're okay, to, to, to be fulfilled, to experience joy or meaning. When you were created to get that ultimately from God, that in him, it's only when you realize that in him you are. You, you are truly, deeply loved. You're fully accepted because of Jesus. That he desires you, that he pursues you. Did you know that in Ephesians 5, it even talks about him nurturing you? He's attentive to you. You're important to him. In him, you're safe. In him, you're secure. You're in a covenant. And no matter how many times you fail on your side, he never fails on his. He never flees. He never leaves you nor forsakes you. If you're a Christian, he is covenantally committed to you through Jesus. He's completely yours. You're completely his in every holistic way. And when that reality is ruling in your heart, it chases out sin. How? Well, because you're no longer looking for those things elsewhere. You finally realize you have it all in Christ. And when and only when that reality is ruling in your heart are you actually able to love someone else in the covenant of marriage the way the other person was created to be loved in the covenant of marriage. Giving yourself fully to them, body and soul, selflessly. And only when they have this reality ruling in their heart are they able to love you in that way too. If you're single, listen, this is why premarital sex will never prepare you for marriage. Watching pornography and masturbating will never, it's never going to prepare you for marriage. Only the gospel will. Sex outside of marriage doesn't prepare you at all for sex inside of marriage. It actually works against that. When you go back and you think about what sex is really about theologically. Ask the married couples that you know. Just being married doesn't solve any of this. The gospel has to be ruling. 
The simple act of getting married has never solved anyone's sexual sin issues. Not in the heart. And married people struggle just as much as singles in seeing the gospel truly rule in our hearts. Only Jesus can do it. And he does. As we look to him, him alone, no other gods before him. As we worship him and pursue him and love him and and find him perfectly pursuing, perfectly loving us. That's why the old Thomas Chalmers in the early 19th century, the, the Scottish pastor, he said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The only way to really see sexual sin mortified in your heart is by God flooding it out. The expulsive power of a new affection. You've got to get drastic in your heart. So listen, if you want to mortify sin in your heart, pursue Jesus. Know Jesus. Love Jesus. Read Jesus' words. Read it with other people. Pray to Jesus. Walk with others who are trying to walk faithfully with Jesus. Confess other, your sins to other people who love Jesus and are following Jesus. Pursue him. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, set your heart upon Jesus and his gospel. Because as you do, and the more that you do, what you come to realize is that he loves you. And he's pursued you, he's come for you, he's died for you, rose for you, he's forgiven you of all your past sexual sin. He will heal you of past sexual sin. He has united you to himself into an unbreakable covenant where you are safe and you are secure. You can be naked and unashamed. And you always will be. It's the only way to dispossess your heart of sexual sin. Let's pray. Father, every, every, would you remind us now, God, that everything that, that we can lack or ever have lacked is found in you. All we ever truly, ultimately need is, is given to us in you. We believe that, but help our unbelief. Heal us, Lord, from past sexual sin. Heal those in, in this room, it's not a part of the text, but heal those in this room who've been severely hurt by the sexual sin of others, even those that they are in a covenantal relationship with. Heal us, Lord, and all of our past sin and and guard us from future sin. Flood our hearts now, Spirit of God, with with an ever-expanding understanding and, and sense and even experience of your love and grant us not just a external conformity to your commands here but a, a hidden and quiet fidelity too founded upon your, your sovereign all powerful unceasing perfect fidelity to us through Jesus we pray in his holy name amen thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church 
Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.